We rejoin our program in the discussion of the greatest slave revolt in history with Bringing Light into Darkness on the premier community radio station of the nation. From 1791 to 1804, more than 100,000 Haitians were killed in the slave revolt against some 30,000 white slave masters on sugar and coffee plantations. The British desired to help crush this rebellion and reinstate slavery because, one, it had worries that a slave revolt was a bad example and it might spread through its Caribbean colonies. Secondly, a British victory would offer a monopoly of sugar, indigo, cotton, and coffee to fuel industry of the British Empire. In 1796, British Empire sent out one of its largest ever expeditionary forces, some 30,000 men on nearly 100 ships. At least 40,000 British soldiers and sailors perished in the campaign. In 1802, Napoleon Bonaparte sent a huge army of some 35,000 troops, including Dutch, Swiss, German, and Polish troops to reconquer France's former colony and restore slavery. Despite a campaign of terror waged against the Saint-Dominique people, Napoleon II was also defeated and only 5,000 of his original 35,000 troops returned. The United States, a significantly lesser world power than France or UK or Spain at the time, gave some four hundred to seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which was a huge sum of money at the time, in military aid and some troops at the time to the French effort as well. Spain made similar attempts, sending thousands of troops between seventeen ninety one and eighteen oh four. So on january first, eighteen oh four, after defeating France, UK, Spain, the three empires, and their U.S. ally, making it arguably one of the greatest military victories of all time. Haiti proclaimed independence becoming the first free black republic in the world. The Haitian economy, once the producer of three-quarters of the world's sugar and half its coffee, was now ravaged from the independence war. France demanded and was supported by the other big powers reparations that Haiti had to abide with in order to get access to the world market and avoid a threat of reinvasion by France. So imagine that. France, after making all of its wealth off the backs of slaves in Saint-Dominique, once the successful slave revolt occurred, felt entitled to and actually received a huge amount of reparations from Haiti. Under coercive conditions of blackmail of sorts was paid. Some 150 million francs, more than 21 billion current U.S. value, financed by a French bank loan that became the world's first structural adjustment policy. The major source of British Empire wealth was also through colonized exploitation and slavery. It's beginning in the early 1600s with the East India Company and the exploitation of South Asian colonies, part of UK's imperial century of 1815 to 1914. In the Western Hemisphere, British West Indies included Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad, Grenada, Antigua, St. Lucia, and the Bahamas. Of course, there were the U.S. colonies. Through huge sums of capital made off the backs of indigenous people of those colonies, it further fueled the wealth and expansion of the British Empire. By 1922, the empire on which the sun never sets, the largest empire in history holding sway to over 450 million people, some 20% of the world. And today you could say the same about the United States. When it comes to our military bases, we have some 800 military bases and the sun never sets on our military bases. To the great chagrin, no doubt, of Dr. Martin Luther King. However, 
Following the 1804 independence of Haiti, some 20 years later, the United States joined the world powers around 1823 with the announcement of the Monroe Doctrine, which made everyone aware that the Western Hemisphere was now the backyard of U.S. imperialism. And the concept of the international power structure of Western imperial powers, imperial nations collectively supporting mutual interests, such as those that sought to back France's quelling of the slave revolt and to maintain slavery, is also an important concept, the international power structure, which continues to rear its head well into the 21st century. So, with all that being said, and with that important history, this history is what it is, but that history is presented to the majority populations of the world, including within the United States, not as it is, but rather a revisionist history is presented, as they want us to think it is. And arguably, we suggest that we have been acculturated to abandon reason and critical thinking in favor of dominant narratives that lack factual and evidentiary basis, but become dominant ideas, not through its logic, but through the mere repetitive mantra of unsubstantiated claims. For instance, Look at the pushback against the truth of history, the colonial history that we just described. How slavery, not just in the United States, but throughout the New World, largely acted as the engine that initiated and created the wealth disparities of the world today and that generated the massive accumulation of wealth that disproportionately went to the imperial colonizing nations at the direct expense of the conquered indigenous peoples and other majority populations of the New World, along with the millions of African-American slaves that were brought to the Americas. Look at the pushback going on right now as we speak when it comes to the term critical race theory for doing nothing more than acknowledging the very truth of the complicating factors that form institutional racism, the intersection of race and law in the United States, the understanding that racial justice cannot be gotten by simply making people non-racist, that the systemic nature of racism suggests that without recognizing and addressing the institutional dynamics around social, cultural, economic, and legal issues that generate and reproduce the great racial wealth divide and other forms of inequality from generation to generation, the problems of racial injustice will remain unsolved. That without that recognition and the profound changes inherently needed accordingly, the problem will remain unremedied that just addressing implicit and explicit forms of intentional and unintentional prejudices of individuals is important but is woefully insufficient. Notice the counter-arguments that are now most often being repeated when it comes to questions around racism and those used in order to keep from questioning the morality and ethics in trying to discern just from unjust aggressions of U.S. foreign policy or a host of other important issues. What is happening is our critical thinking potentiality has devolved to emotionally overcharged uncritical thinking processes, a devolution in which we have been acculturated to essentially abandon reason in critical thinking. We are increasingly being acculturated to find acceptable and worthy as evidence of truth that which is absence of evidentiary proof. A common scenario instead is just the repetition of a counterposition without supporting evidence, with the sheer repetition in a vacuum in which dissent is disallowed, that this sheer repetition without the allowance of a credible oppositional point of view becomes the dominant informational messaging that inundates our minds 
to the point that we forget it is nearly completely lacking in evidentiary supporting content. I adopt the position just as a five-year-old would to become part of the in-crowd, the cool group, if you will, rather than on the merits of the logic. The result is often the counter-arguments that carry the day do not in any way address any of the potentially valid, well-articulated concerns and questions being raised. For example, if you bring up or in any way promote critical race theory, the foundational basis of your position is not a matter for critical discourse. Instead, it is most often completely circumvented, and instead, without producing any evidence that your position is unfounded, you are instead simply labeled a hater, as hating America. Another example comes to mind if you demand proof from our government to justify their foreign policy claims against the government we are seeking to regime change. For example, such as leading up to the Iraq War in 2003, if you questioned weapons of mass destruction claims, or questioned that Saddam was harboring al-Qaeda, or pointed out the absence of evidence that Saddam was responsible for 9-11, rather than examining the veracity of your concerns, you are simply dismissed as a Saddam Hussein apologist. Meanwhile, the complicity of the media that has helped enable a long history of lying to the American people into accepting and or maintaining seemingly endless wars, not just in Iraq, but in Vietnam before that, and in Libya, and in Syria, and the protracted Afghanistan war, to name just a few examples, and which have led to war crimes of millions of deaths, you are called an Assad or a Qaddafi apologist. This despite a track record of foreign policy-related claims in which our government lied to the American public time and time again to justify unjust interventions. If you ask for evidence that it was Assad who gassed his own people in August 2013 in Nalgota, or in March 2013 in al-Qanasal, Syria, or if you ask for evidentiary proof of the Russian bounty story, or that Russia hacked the DNC, or impacted our elections in any significant way, instead of addressing the reasonable concern that there was an absence of evidence presented to the American public on those claims, you were called an Assad or a Putin apologist. So instead of framing a knee-jerk identifying someone who is a proponent of critical race theory as simply meaning someone who hates your country, a more science-based definition would indicate that a major tenet of critical race theory is that racism and the disparate racial outcomes that it generates are the result of complex interaction of changing and often subtle forms of social and institutional dynamics rather than simply explicit and intentional prejudices of predominantly white individuals. In other words, racism is not as much about individual prejudice as it is about the systemic multiple forms of racism that are deeply woven into society and culture and are interacting throughout the legal system and other institutions throughout society. We digress to a discussion of critical race theory to show an example of the acculturation process that conditions us to abandon reason in favor of uncritical, quote-unquote, identity politics. Because if we had not long ago been acculturated to abandon reason and critical thinking, we would see clearly the consistently criminal nature of our foreign policy over time, again and again, in the countries mentioned and unmentioned. Returning to critical race theory, the evidence of the veracity of critical race theory and the systemic nature of racism lies in data that reflects that well into the 21st century, 
Blacks have just one-tenth the median wealth of the median white household. According to a 2020 Brookings Institute report, quote, the median white household has a net worth of $171,000, which is 10 times the net worth of the median black household of 17100 end quote. And we live in the 21st century in the United States of America, in which regardless of educational attainment, prejudicial outcomes continue to prevail, as evidenced by what we have documented on previous shows, namely that, quote, black families whose heads of households graduated from college had about 33% less wealth than white families whose heads of household dropped out of high school, end quote. End quote. At every educational level, blacks are twice as likely to be unemployed compared to their similarly educated white peers, end quote. But instead, we are acculturated and told by even President Obama that a major problem is initiative and personal responsibility and that blacks need to try harder if they are to succeed. The same absence of critical thinking allows most Americans to be misled into focusing on the wrong arguments with respect to how we should deal with the immigration problem along our southern border. The main arguments all focus on issues aside from the cause that most Central Americans cite as a reason to flee Central America and risk life and limb for an unknown and unguaranteed outcome of coming to the United States to seek asylum. Instead, it is due to the violence and inability to access economic opportunity in their countries of origin they most frequently cite. And this is where we want to turn our attention towards with the balance of the time we have remaining in tonight's show. Why is there so much violence and lack of opportunity in these homelands? Tonight, we've talked about colonialism history within the New World and how it made fortunes for the Spanish and Portuguese and then the French and English and then the United States, mainly following the Monroe Doctrine in 1823 when we declared the Western Hemisphere, our imperial backyard that we would dominate economically and militarily. With the independence in 1821 of El Salvador and other Central American countries, as well as other countries of the South, who declared their independence from Spain, the methods of exploitation would change, but not their outcomes. Colonialism was replaced with an ever-evolving forms of neocolonialism, and it was the United States and its big businesses supported by U.S. military interventions and pejorative trade agreements with corrupt governments supported by the United States and often installed by the United States following the 1823 Monroe Doctrine that would soon become the main beneficiaries of those markets rather than the majority populations that lived there. Essentially what followed was a process in which Central American resources and labor were appropriated in such a way as to create a U.S. corporate cash cow. According to the esteemed Central American historian Walter Lefebvre, in his well-recognized acclaimed book, Inevitable Revolutions, he essentially described a process which neo-dependency was seen as an evolutionary stage of oppression and was asserted by the United States over the next century in such a way in which the U.S. gained control of the Central American economies and created Central American economic dependency upon the United States. This process in the initial stages was primarily economic. However, economic aspects of dependency alone was insufficient. It was soon accompanied by other forms of quote-unquote power projection that were needed 
including political and military forms. Lefebvre further wrote that neo-dependency was a form of a more informal control and that this new form of dependency should be appreciated as a way of looking at Latin American development, not in isolation, but as part of an international system in which leading powers, and since World War II, the United States in particular, have used their economic strength to make Latin American development dependent upon and subordinate to the interests of international power structure countries rather than their own people. Dependence theory claims that this dependence, quote, has stunted Latinx economic growth by forcing their economies to rely on one or two main export crops or on minerals extraction that are shipped out to the industrial nations. Moreover, dependence theory suggests that, quote, because their price depends on an international marketplace in which they have no control over, but the industrial powers do control, they are completely at the mercy of others who prioritize not the economic interests of these Latin countries, but their own economic interests, and seek to maximize their investors' profits, again at the direct cost to the economies they are exploiting. The result is not just that quote, key exports are controlled by foreign investors and or local elites who depend on foreigners for capital, markets, and often personal protection, and that over time, a strong local oligarchy emerges, ultimately connected to foreign capitalists, with whom which they align at the cost of betraying their loyalty to the majority population of their own country, who, as a result, increasingly have their basic material benefits and survival benefits largely compromised, if not completely unmet, and who often also hire their own private mercenary small armies to protect their privilege and prevent squatters from using underutilized land to meet their own needs. But the result is not just all the above. The result also is that these single or dual crop economies, by definition, become vulnerable to the vicissitudes of the international marketplace, where prices are ultimately controlled by the large investment capital, where the prices for sugar or any other product can bottom out during a business cycle. In other words, the principled truth of don't put all your eggs in one basket is proven true once again. The result is that real Latin American development, namely the ability to afford majority populations the means to support their own families first, by protecting their economy from foreign domination becomes incompatible with U.S. economic and strategic interests. And what does Lefevre mean by incompatible with U.S. economic and strategic interests? He means incompatible with the priority of making a windfall profit by U.S. investment capital, which arguably is the real primary motivation of our U.S. foreign policy to make the world safe for U.S. and Western multinational investment and their obscene levels of profit returns, a reality which has the nasty side effect of creating unlivable conditions in the nations they operate in, thus stimulating mass migration north towards the United States. And then finally, to complete the understanding of neocolonialism, Lefebvre writes, quote, No region in the world is more tightly integrated into the U.S. economic and security system than Central America, end quote. The conditions of inequality throughout Central America that have promoted uprisings and revolutions in Nicaragua, El Salvador, and in Guatemala, he writes, 
not to mention the 2009 coup of the Zelaya government in Honduras, a popularly elected government that was reversing those very conditions of foreign control, that those conditions of inequality were therefore a direct outcome of, end quote. As a result of the history of the United States-Central American relations, popular governments have been overthrown and replaced by governments that enabled death squads, a long list of horrific mutilations of Central Americans, the raping and murdering of nuns and other clergy, the assassination of others such as Archbishop Arnulfo Romero, and the near total lawlessness in countries such as El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, the unacceptable living conditions that have promoted rebellion throughout Central America, he writes. And we argue that this is precisely what is responsible for the migration waves of Central Americans that seek economic opportunity and safety from such violence at our southern border. Meanwhile, importantly, with respect to the claim of neo-dependency created by U.S. foreign policy, created the conditions which results in huge profits for U.S. investment capital, while at the same time has, quote, unquote, stunted the Latins' economic growth by forcing their economies to rely on one or two main exports or on minerals that are shipped to the industrial nations, end quote. The fever documents this claim. By the 1920s, Central American dependency on one or two crop economies was astounding. Costa Rica, mainly controlled by the British in 1920, out of $18 million in exports each year, $12 million was in coffee, $5 million was in bananas. So 17 out of 18 million was in two export crops. In El Salvador, predominantly a German neo-colonialized nation at that time, out of their 18 million in exports, 17 million were in coffee and 1 million in sugar. In Guatemala, 25 million in exports, 19 million in coffee and 3 million in exports was bananas. So 22 out of 25 million dollars of exports in Guatemala were in two export crops, coffee and bananas. For Honduras, $25 million in exports, $21 million were in bananas alone. In Nicaragua, $11 million in exports, $6 million were in coffee, and $2 million in bananas. So 8 out of $11 million in two export crops. Lefevre writes on, quote, The extent of U.S. power is even more striking as far as imports were concerned. In every country, North Americans at least doubled their markets in Central America between 1913 and 1929. In El Salvador, they quadrupled their market, increasingly overall, exports to the United States from Central America exploded from 1913 to 1929. By 1929, U.S. was by far the leading market for each state except El Salvador, where Germany was in front and Costa Rica, which sent more of its products to the British. By 1929, U.S. investors in Guatemala, especially United Fruit, owned all but a few miles of railroads. They owned the leading bank. They owned a number of major industries in the great utility company American and Foreign Power owned by General Electric. In Honduras, United Fruit and its subsidiaries controlled the rail system, port facilities, and nearly all the banana and rubber producing lands. North Americans owned the prosperous silver mine. We are taught to say we created the railroads in Honduras so that they would have railroads, but the railroads were created in order to get 
the United Fruit bananas of U.S. investment to the marketplace, to the ports for it to be sent out to the world economy. In Nicaragua, United Fruit and Atlantic Fruit claimed 300,000 acres of land. North Americans owned and or managed the leading mines, the railroads, the lumber industry, and the banks. Essentially, the United States owned Central America. So by 1948, when you look at Central America exports, in Costa Rica, out of $32 million in exports, $25 million went to the United States, a percentage of 78%. In El Salvador, out of their $46 million in total exports, $35 million went to the United States, some 76%. In Guatemala, out of $50 million in total exports in 1948, $45 million went to the United States, a percentage of 90%. In Honduras, in 1948, $20 million was their total exports. $14 million, or 70%, went to the United States. And in Nicaragua, by 1948, $27 million annually in exports, in which $20 million went to the United States. 74% of that total exports went to the United States. So this is what Lefebvre says when Central America was created through neo-dependency and U.S. investment to be no more than an appendage to the profit-making of these large corporations. And if there was any type of popular uprising, our U.S. military was quick to intervene and reassert military dictatorships or leaders that were loyal not to the majority populations, but to U.S. interests. And again, it is this whole history that you must understand and reverse if we are to successfully and humanitarianly address the issue of mass migration to the United States that has become a political football of the Democrats and Republicans. We'll see you next week. Don't be late. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Navity. He breaks all his own laws 